And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 16 through 19. And coming at you from the great state of Texas. Texas. Welcome to another episode of Bridge Radio. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to everyone who is tuning in. We are the Christian podcast that brings on the world's top Christian apologists, theologians, and scholars to discuss not only theology, but also to engage the culture through a Christian worldview. I am your host, Julio Mar Rodriguez, and across from me, I have the boss of this whole shebang called Bridge Ministries, Mr. Steve Den Hartog. How's it going? I'm doing well. How you all doing today? And so the A.W. Varilla actually is not here, but... Don't don't worry, people. We have Mr. Raw Lovingsworth across from us. So oh, how's it yeah. going, brother? Thank you for being on the program with us. Good. Greetings, everyone. This is a rare treat. Yes, it is. This is this is a brother in Christ, a friend of the ministry who we dearly love here. We so do. He's, he's great. Um, if you're new to the program, please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Android, Windows, Google Play. And please, please rate us and drop a positive review. It allows us to move up the Christian podcast chart. You can also tune into Bridge Radio by downloading our Bridge app available on all app stores simply type bridge ministries you'll see our logo name and slogan which is coffee and good news there you will fill yourself with everything from expository sermon series through books of the bible lectures from our apologetics conference uh, articles on christian faith and practice devotion and a lot more so uh, please check that out guys like and share and uh, i just want to ask how was everybody's thanksgiving here oh it was great it was good we had uh all the kids around the the table and uh, a lot of turkey and ham. We had a we had a we great did. day. I yeah. was there. That's right. <laughs> I had two really big Thanksgivings. All our, our adopted kids as well. Yeah, I had, a, I had a fat attack. That's when you eat and you just like you're really like just breathing really hard and you just feel gross. I call that a fat attack. <laughs> Raw, how was yours? It was great. We had a lot more family come in this year and it was just great to have everyone around. Yeah, it's good. I, I love Thanksgiving. It's great. It's great. So, guys, uh, for the topic of today, uh, in prior episodes of Bridge Radio, we have had on guests to defend and establish the existence of Jesus. Uh, it's an undeniable fact of history. Any argument against this truth has an immense hill to climb, with opposition not only coming from Christians, but non-Christians, such as Bart Ehrman. Um, however, just because Jesus existed does not mean, therefore, he is the Son of God, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. So on today's edition of Bridge Radio, we will be talking uh, about Christianity's central event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, with someone who many consider, as I do, to be the mm -hmm. world's top Christian apologist and scholar on the resurrection. I'm so excited. Yes. Um, our guest has dedicated his professional life to the examination of the relevant historical, philosophical, and theological issues surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has also contributed uh, more than 60 chapters or articles to additional books and over 100 articles and reviews in journals and other publications. Lastly, this is interesting, he is known for helping Lee Strobel come to Saving Faith as well and being a close friend of one of our century's greatest atheists. Uh, who later converted to theism, Mr. Uh, Anthony Flew. So um, thank you, Dr. Gary Habermas, for joining us today. Well, thank you, guys. It's a good occasion. It's a good time of the year and a good group of folks here. So this should be an interesting chat. It should. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah. How was your Thanksgiving, by the way? It was fantastic. We, um, we have the advantage, my wife and me, of 
having all, believe it or not, 14 of our grandchildren all live in Lynchburg. Wow. Mm. And the fact that they all live in this town is probably harder to imagine than the fact that uh, we have 14. But (laughs) uh, now, one of of our families is living overseas uh, presently, but they are... Mm you know, back here when they're finished. But we had about 20 people in the house here. That's great. And uh, it was fantastic because, like, some of the comments uh, you fellas made, just to get everybody around the table, you know, we... And you mentioned Lee Strobel. You know, um, I got the... We don't do this often. It's only Mm -hmm. the second year we've ever done it. But we actually got the family around in the family room together. And I read a little one-page-or-so story from Lee Strobel... Mm -hmm about when he was a non-Christian and when he was an atheist. And huh. He visited a Christian family in inner-city Chicago, and they had nothing. He said they literally had nothing on the shelves, no, no furniture to sit on. Hmm. And they were happy in the huh. Lord. And he said he couldn't believe they were happy, and he was hmm. totally empty inside. Huh. And so he wrote an article on them, and they filled... Uh, the, the people in Chicago filled their house with every good thing imaginable. And the family, when he went back later to check on them, they were giving almost everything away <laughs> because they said it would be wrong to take all the gifts and deny their neighbors. So, I mean, wow. it was truly Thanksgiving. And then we went around mm. the circle, and every, everybody mentioned just one thing they were thankful for. So mm. it was... Yeah. It was, for us, it was a very memorable meal. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. That's think, beautiful. Yeah, it's so important know. to take those opportunities to just uh, to think about the reasons why we have to be thankful because so often we just fly through life otherwise and we don't take that opportunity to mm-hmm. pause. So I'm just I'm so thankful for this culture that uh, takes the time to to set aside a day in which to give thanks to our Lord. Sure, and when you have little kids there, you know they're. Yeah. You're making marks on their mind that this is a time when we just don't say thank you, that we're really, really into it, you know, and we should be living like that. So, yeah, great, exactly. great season of the year. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Well, Dr. Habermas, can you tell us why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important to the Christian faith? <laughs> you know, it'd be a real stumper if I just said, no, I really don't know why. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, let me, let me just guess. go simply... To go to that passage that you've already referred to, mm. Paul mentions the witnesses. It's the longest continuous list of uh, of witnesses, plus it's the earliest list of witnesses. We often think of lists getting longer as time goes on, but but the longest list is here in the earliest time, and that's 1 Corinthians 15. And then when he's done giving the list, he tells us what Christianity would be without the resurrection. Mm. And I guess this would be what you call a spoiler alert. <laughs> if you get through the these next six or eight verses, you could just summarize them this way. Paul's saying if Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have nothing. Mm. In fact, twice he says our faith is vain. Yeah. Um, you don't hear the New Testament saying your faith is vain very often. But yeah. Paul says without the resurrection there is. And I think the reason is that if the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel, and whenever it's defined in the New Testament, it generally uh, always refers to the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message. Deity, death, and resurrection. Well, if the resurrection happened, the death means nothing because, come on, everybody dies. Yeah. And what would the claim to deity be? If he didn't rise from the dead and he predicted it, it'd be a false claim to deity. So mm-hmm. the, yeah. the resurrection is 
is the piece that ha- that holds all the rest together. And so Paul's exactly right when he says, without it, we have nothing. I mean, we could give other reasons, but I think this is enough. Not to have the resurrection destroys the gospel, and destroying the gospel message destroys Christianity, pure and simple. Yeah. Jesus becomes simply another great teacher and not our Savior if the resurrection did not happen. Yeah, and you wonder even how great a teacher, I mean, yeah, he'd have some good teachings, but True. how great a teacher if he said the most important things you know about me mm-hmm. are not only that I'm bringing the words of life, but that I am, philosophers would say, ontologically, sure. the path, mm-hmm. I am the path, and I'm going to rise from the dead, and if neither were true, right. if his two most important messages were false, I would be, I would struggle to say that the next 13 little things could make up for the two big ones being yeah. false. Yeah, yes. right. That's a good point. Dr. Habermas, uh, why can we say with certainty that Jesus Christ actually died? Well, you folks may know I'm, I'm working on a, on a magnum opus right now on the resurrection. My friends have pushed and pushed, and I, hmm. I fought against it for years. And then I started. And believe it or not, I was sitting here working on it when you called. And um, <laughs> I am up to 4,300 pages on the resurrection. Wow. And I have 150 pages on that question you just asked. Wow. 150 wow. pages on how do we know Jesus died. And I, I literally think, I have a list, I literally think you could come up with at least 15 reasons hmm. to to know that he died. And these reasons would be medical reasons. They would be historical reasons. I mean, let's just take historical. Uh, Bart Ehrman, of, of all people who has recently changed, he goes back and forth, but he's recently changed from calling himself an agnostic to calling himself an atheist. Okay. So here's a prominent atheist New Testament scholar, probably the best-known New Testament critic in North America, maybe the world. And he stops to give 15 different historical sources for Jesus' death by crucifixion. Wow. 15 independent sources. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul Meyer, who retired from a uh, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, Paul Meyer says that in the ancient world, events are often established by one source, and two or three sources often make an event impregnable. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we do with 15? Yeah. Right. What do we do with 15 historical sources? So if you want to argue historically, that's a great argument. Uh, I think Ehrman seems to say, seems to think that that does it by itself. But we have a lot of uh, medical arguments. We can go in the, into that if you want, but but we have solid medical articles, enough to, to say that there ha- are a number, more than most people know, because some of them are pretty obscure, but a number of medical argu- arguments and books that... Um, argue medical details for the death of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting. I didn't pull this out for the interview because I didn't know you uh, gentlemen would be going there. <laughs> but I have a book sitting right here on my desk by a co-author of mine, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Bergeron, who's an MD. He and I did an article on the resurrection for the Irish Theological Quarterly a few years ago. But Joe just came out, I mean, this week, with a new book called The Crucifixion of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's subtitled, A Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Jesus. And it uh, looks like it's about 250 pages long. So, wow. I mean, there's there's a lot of data. And um, let me just add one more thing. This is just a testimony, I know. But, but um, two other skeptics, probably next to Bart Ehrman, might be the next two best known. Okay. Uh, 
John Dominic Crossan, mm-hmm. and uh, Marcus Borg. Now, Borg passed away just a few years ago, but Marcus Borg and Dom Crossan both say something. I mean, they're, I can't, you know, two quotes won't be exact, sure. but the two quotations from each of them basically say that the resurre- that the crucifixion is the easy, most easily established event in the ancient world, or that Dom Crossan says he takes it absolutely for granted. So, wow. yeah, th- those are yeah. comments that it's true, and somebody could rightly say, well, yeah, those are comments, but please give us the evidence. Well, I mean, we can. We I just gave one, the uh, 15 independent arguments. If you want to go to the medical arguments, that's fine. We can do that. But, but just the fact that there's uh, dozens of uh, medical doctors who have answered this one, I think that's a pretty good clue about what's going on. And, and it's a natural event, you know what I mean? Right. Everybody dies, so the fact that Jesus would die is not, you know, terribly strange. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And um, for Islam as well, I think this is this might be a, a question in, in our audience. Uh, right. Islam says that, you know, Jesus, I believe, took him, uh, that saints came down and, and took him off the cross. What, what would be your rebuttal against that? First of all, let me just note, um, the Quran, while denying the resurrection, mm-hmm. sorry, well, denies the resurrection, but while denying the death of Jesus, mm-hmm. it doesn't give just that theory. Um, it lets Muslims, as I understand them, as, as I understand Muslim scholars to be saying, it allows, uh, the Quran allows Muslims to have their own theory as to why he, mm. um, you know, got off the cross alive. Sure. But w- one comment right off the bat that I would make, and uh, this is backed up actually by a, a major Muslim uh, scholar himself, but one comment I would make is, as history, just as history, that's it, it's a pretty weak argument, because if Jesus died about 30 A.D., and the Quran is written about 630 A.D., mm-hmm. yeah. that's 600 years after the event, mm. and it, you'd be very hard-pressed, no matter what your religious beliefs, sure. to argue that a source 600 and uh, 600 years later should trump 15 independent sources from right after the event itself. Mm. And uh, so, so 600 is just too long. And the, the Muslim scholar I was talking about, he, he's uh, passed away now, but he was a very well-known uh, Muslim debater um, a generation, well, about two decades ago, mm-hmm. Ahmad uh, Didat. And he wrote a book, I'm holding it here in my hand, it's called Crucifixion or Crucifixion. And the second time, the end of the word is spelled F-I-C-T-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. And he says right in the book, he says, the Christian response is going to be, your book is 600 years late, and that's not good history. And D-Dot, the Muslim debater, says they are absolutely correct. And then he goes on to say what he says about that. But just the point that yeah. 600 years is too late for an event, he agrees. Hmm. So I, I can't wow. I can't think of that as a very strong argument, to be honest with you. Yeah, like, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we've really established here that Jesus existed. And then now we could, uh, you know, without a doubt, um, you know, affirm that Jesus Christ did die by crucifixion. So now we jump into the resurrection. And one thing in right. listening to your um, lectures and and and, uh, and a lot of your material is that you point out that in the last thirty years there has been a change in resurrection studies. Uh, can you please talk about that? 
Sure. Um, yeah, okay. I think if, if what you're pointing to is um, theology back in the days of Rudolf Boltmann, now he died in uh, 1976, I believe, but uh, from the 40s up until then, he was sort of the leading voice. And I would say that Boltmann is probably the left of Bart Ehrman. I mean, he's, he's very skeptical. And since that time, up, up now at present, in the last two decades, the last century, and then the first two decades of this century, we are in the, in the middle of a movement commonly called the Third Quest for the Historical Jesus. And it's a movement where, among other things, all sides can agree on a number of historical facts. And there are several things that have made the last 40 years, say from 1980 to date, more, more positive, would be things like this. The one I just mentioned, that most scholars, left, right, and center, admit a common core of historical facts that wasn't so much happening back in the 40s and 50s. So a common core of facts. Uh, secondly, the fact that these the earliest of them are backed up right right up to the crucifixion. I mean, today, at least two different sources have come out. One, Richard Baucom, who's very, very reputable, but two different sources have come out now saying the consensus New Testament view of New Testament scholars, theologians, historians, is that the early Christian message started immediately after the cross. The message that we can trace, the, you could say, well, someone could say, well, duh, of course it started right away. Just read the book of Acts. But not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying critics think our sources go back to immediately after the cross. You could have the disciples preaching it in 30 AD, and our first source could be 100 AD. Now, I mean, that's not true, but what I mean is the 100 AD would not be a definition of early. But they think our sources go all the way back to the cross. So uh, first argument there was there's a lot of shared common facts. Second argument, they go back very, very early. And uh, thirdly, um, there are criteria that these New Testament scholars would use, what we would know better as argument for embarrassment, the argument from enemy attestation, the argument from multiple attestation. Mm -hmm. And there's some overlap there. That's why there the um, this list, this common list is where it is. But these rules are used by everybody. So that's a third thing. Hmm. And so I think we can use all of these, a, a common list, common rules, and the fact that we can get things back to a very early date. Um, I, when I did my doctoral dissertation back in 1976, I didn't know it at the time, but the climate was just starting to change okay. at that time. And I, I started arguing, and I'm not saying I started arguing because of my dissertation, I'm not saying that at all, but I, I started developing an argument that is now known as the uh, minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the way I put all of this together, the rules, the line of facts, the early date. And what I argue is that... Uh, if you use only a handful of facts, now someone's going to stop me and say, you know, what's a handful? And I've used as few as three and as many as maybe eight. But I, right now I just generally stick with six of them. And my argument is I can use 
six facts that are allowed by 90-something percent of contemporary scholars today. And those facts are enough because each of those six facts have backup for them. So the, the group is more than six. It's six and what backs the six up. The, these are allowed by everybody. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what you get is uh, putting these three arguments I just gave a moment ago, why things have changed, putting them together, what you get, what you get is that the facts which virtually everybody agrees to, even unbelievers, the facts, um, unbelieving scholars, mm-hmm. and you have to be, you ha- I'm only talking to Christians, I- I'm talking about Christian and non-Christian scholars here. Right. I'm not talking about anybody who feels like talking about it. These have to be specialists. Mm-hmm. And 90-something percent of them will agree with these six facts. Well, what happens if those six, the, by far the best explanations that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, now the skeptic can't be quite so sure that they're right. And so you have skeptics left and right, quite, quite a good little number of them, mm-hmm. uh, admitting now that the, the data are very formidable. And uh, I, think, I think the conclusion of this is that the sides have switched a bit. And the case for the resurrection is very strong now. What would you say to a skeptic who says, like, we're committing a a, a fallacy in, in that we are making an appeal to authority, which is consensus? Yeah. Yeah, I hear that a lot. It's a total joke. Yeah. The, 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 it's somebody, all right, usually, not always, not always, but the guys who say that are usually the non-scholars <laughs> who often say Jesus never lived. See, Barman yeah. says, Bargerman says nobody in the guild, no, no, this is, this is Bart now, um, <laughs> no s- scholar, no historical Jesus specialist who has a university, seminary, or college position, none of them, he says, as far as he knows, thousands and thousands, he says none of them, as far as he knows, thinks that Jesus never lived. The guys who make that objection oftentimes, the saints' argument from authority, are often the same people that say Jesus never lived. The difference is, not always, as Bartleman says himself, there's a few accredited scholars among them, but they don't hold university teaching positions. So his statement is still true, that there's nobody there. But in this uh, kind of... um, group of people who talk real loudly and don't have the credentials to back it up, to be quite frank. They'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's an argument for authority. Let me tell you why it's not. First of all, something's wrong with somebody who, uh, not with the person, but something's wrong with the argument that says, if you quote scholars, it's it's a fallacy. Because let's think about it. If you have cancer and you want to get the best opinion available, would anybody in the world say to you, don't go to the cancer specialist? That would be an argument of authority. Mm. That would be the fallacy of authority. Right. Silly. The fallacy of authority says that you commit it when, when, when a couple things happen, or either of a couple things. Mm. Uh, number one, if you quote non-scholars, so you're going to quote non-cancer specialists to tell you about the cancer. That's mm-hmm. a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Or if you think by quoting any scholars, even the specialists, that you're by quoting scholars, you're done with the argument and there's nothing else to say. Mm-hmm. Because the scholars can't 
prove it just because of their opinion. But opinions are wrong sometimes. So, okay, this this argument I just gave is not an argument from authority because, number one, I'm using the specialists and only the specialists, as I've already made clear before you asked the question, just as mm-hmm. somebody doesn't think I'm, you know, special pleading here. But secondly, <laughs> here's the most important point. The minimal facts, as I started when I gave the definition, the minimal facts are minimal because, A, there are many facts that back each of the six up. And it's just kind of a throw-in that everybody says, all the scholars say they agree. That's kind of a give me, that everybody that everybody concedes it. The reason they concede it is because the evidence for these facts are so strong. So that breaks the chain of the authority argument altogether. The sure. fact that uh, a bunch of people agree makes it nice. But the most important thing is that we have multiple, I mean multiple, like over a dozen yeah. reasons that back up each of the six. In fact, I give a lecture now where I give the six facts, and I I break it down. I'll say how many critically accepted pieces of data do we have for these six? Hmm. And if you can believe it, if you can believe this, it's over one hundred pieces of data, over one hundred backups for six facts. That's why nobody's arguing with it. Hmm. So it's not an argument for authority at all. Number one, it's the specialists, and everybody goes for specialists like in my cancer case. But number two, the most important one is who cares what the scholars say? The data back up the six points. Ah, okay. Well, you can just hear paper shredding that objection. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It it really, really is because... Uh, because the person who makes it, you know, oftentimes, mm-hmm. so, and, and Christians do this too, I want to be real clear, Christians do this too. But in that skeptical community, largely peopled by folks who do not have training, who talk off the top of their head, who get shrill and and nasty when someone says God exists or Jesus existed, yeah. that group... They frequently, when you read the material, or you read the way they all chirp in like birds on a wire, they all <laughs> chirp in when somebody publishes some argument, then all these little guys come in and start going, bing, 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 and they all say, you're idiots, and they use names with you and everything. Yeah. That's just almost almost always the way it goes. Yeah. Well, the, the, the folks who chirp in like that, you, first of all, you wonder what, what's going on in them. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, they've got some pain. They've got some pain going on, or, or I would think, I would sure. argue, sure. or getting angry wouldn't be their their first move. But the thing I was going to say was, when somebody says something that sounds good to them, like, yeah, yeah, authority, authority, then everybody starts parodying authority. (laughs) That doesn't mean very many of them know what the fallacy of authority is. Right. But they they parrot it. Now, Christians do that, too. Mm-hmm. Christians hear things, uh, a Greek word means this. Yeah, yeah, I don't know Greek. I mean, I mean, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people who sure. don't know Greek, they'll say, yeah, 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 I've heard the Greek word means this. The Greek word means this. Greek word means this. We mm-hmm. do the same thing. Uh-huh. But what I'm saying is that that authority thing is one of the ones that just gets parroted right down the line. And I, I, they can't defend it because they're just wrong. Kind of leading into what you were just talking about, what would you consider to be bad arguments used by Christians for the resurrection? Well, I got to be careful here because my my answers have already been real long, and I'd like I'd I'd rather have shorter mm-hmm. answers and let you guys respond. But some of these things, if I start answering some of these, I'm going to have to explain myself a long way, mm-hmm. and because I don't want to step on anybody's toes or make any Christians angry. But here's a couple ones that I think are not 
uh, the best arguments in the world. Uh, let's just start with the biggie. Because I use this minimal facts argument, and I'm arguing with skeptics, uh, I think it's a bad argument if a Christian who's trying to dialogue, written, oral, whatever, if they're trying to dialogue, if they start by saying, well, the Bible's inerrant, and... And anytime somebody leads with inerrancy, to me, would be like a boxer leading with his face. You're giving okay. a target. When you lead with your face in a boxing match, it's almost like you want somebody to take a swing at you. Well, that's not a good move in a boxing match. Mm -hmm. uh, you might find yourself on a canvas and the fight may be over. Well, there's nothing wrong with believing in inerrancy. I mean, all mm -hmm. someone's got to do is look at, you know, look at where I teach. There's nothing wrong with an inerrancy. But inerrancy is sort of an in-house discussion um, between believers. And whether it's true or false is a totally different issue. Mm -hmm. But but scholars don't start with it because you can't expect the critical community to grant you that fact. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to say, if you lead like that, they're going to be very, very happy. And they're going to go, ha, 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 you're starting with a prejudice source that only you guys believe. Right. Okay. Well, why not start with the source that they believe and that they can't get out of? Hmm. So that, that's one. I, th I think that's a biggie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to start with inspiration of any sort, any view of inspiration. Um, there's a few smaller arguments that, that kind of bother me. Here's a couple. Some Christians still use the argument that... The Christian message happened too soon for legends to to evolve. So, if our first sermons, well, according to the Book of Acts, the sermon started you know fifty days later at Pentecost. But if things really got going, epistles and things like that, if things really got going at fifty A.D., twenty years later, twenty five years later, first gospel, thirty forty years later, if if that's the time. Then, skept then uh, Christians will say, oh, it's way too early for legend. But mm -hmm. it's not. I mean, if you think about it, here's how long it takes for a legend to start. Me to talk to you <laughs> now, misunderstand what you said, go out and tell my next-door neighbor that one of you said X, Y, Z, only to find out that you never said X, Y, Z, but I told did. And I went ahead and told my... Uh, neighbor, and they misquoted it. Fellas, can I check this line right back to you? Sure. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. a line here. I don't, there's no person on it. Just a moment. Yeah. So it, here's how fast it takes legend to start. It's not really legend, but that sort of thing, that kind of a false story. Well, you know, we all talk about the telephone game, right, mm -hmm. where you tell somebody and, and the guy whispers a story to the second one, the guy whispers a story to the third one, the guy whispers a story to the fourth one, and by the time you get to the last story in the line, it's only been 10 minutes max. But the last guy retells the story, and everybody starts laughing, because it's, hyster it's just hysterical sometimes how much the story's changed like that. Mm, yeah. So how long does it take for legend or falsehood to spread? Uh, about Pretty quick. 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So to say 20 years is too soon, it's just, it's just too... That one doesn't make sense. Mm. I don't think we should... I've even cautioned a couple major... Um, apologists, very well-known and good scholars, I've cautioned them because I've heard them say it, and I'll say, don't say that. You're, it's like you're leading with your face again, because okay. you don't need... That. By the way, we have historical examples of 
of um, here's another one. They wouldn't spread the story while the eyewitnesses were living because the eyewitnesses could correct them. Uh, that's a similar kind of a variety of this. Well, um, we have examples in history, in history, where people have spread false stories while the eyewitnesses were in the area. Okay. So I don't like that argument either. Sure. Another one is it's not totally false, but it's a little bit misleading, is to say that no Jew in the first century believed in a single resurrection before the end of time. Um First of all, we have an exception to that now. And secondly, let's just grant the argument. What comes from that? And I don't think you get the force of it that you want to. So those are some things that I think we have to be careful of. But I think the two big ones there don't lead with inspiration and and uh, lead with accredited facts of some sort, some argument for accredited facts. And secondly, uh, don't say that the time was too short to have legend. Right, right. Um, You mentioned earlier... Uh, in regards to the consensus facts that roughly 90% of scholarship agree upon. Um, I'd like you to touch upon uh, one of them uh, in regards to early Christian creeds that are found within the scriptures and, and, and their dating. That's an excellent question. I made the comment earlier that if we start with the earliest epistles, we're going to be jumping to about 50 A.D., um, give or take. James could be 48, but of the earliest of Paul's epistles, and he's the earliest you know, major writer, uh, his first one is usually said to be 1 Thessalonians at 50 A.D., so 30 to 50 is plus 20. Now, in the context, we're talking about what has moved this argument back to 30 A.D., or 33 A.D., as some think the the crucifixion happened. Um, And there's two major arguments that close that 20-year gap. One is the one I mentioned earlier about the the, uh, what are called criteria, and those are the arguments, enemy attestation, embarrassing testimony, Mm -hmm. um, you know, etc. And uh, those help close the gap. But I think the main argument that closed that 20-year gap is the one you just raised. In the New Testament, there are dozens, I think that's a fair comment, dozens of little tiny statements that have been taught since the beginning, that have been taught since 30-ish or 33 AD, but they didn't get written down until the 50s when the epistles were written. They're mostly in the epistles. And we know that they were taught earlier. Well, how do you know that? Well, oh, by the way, it's not even it's not evangelicals that even came up with this argument. It's the critics. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. The critics have come up with this. And this is a, a unanimously conceded argument today that namely, in the New Testament, there are a number, a couple dozen, of these little tiny short statements that while they're in books from the 50s, their actual proclamation orally goes back to the 30s. Bart Ehrman, for example, again, the best known skeptic today, Bart Ehrman says there are a number of those that can get us back to, he says, all the way back to within a year or two after the cross. Now again, 
this is not the, well, how good is that argument? Acts says they were preaching in 50 days. That's not the argument. We're, ask, we're asking how far can we date our sources back? And Bart says the sources go back to one to two years after the cross. Wow. And almost everybody says that. And Bart gives a list. I mean, there's a lot of them, guys. There, there's probably uh, a dozen relevant texts that go back to the 30s A.D. And you go, you go, okay, okay, time out. I can see you asking, you know, time out. How do we know where these are? Well, first comment, even if you don't know how to find them, the fact that these the arguments started with critical scholars, Bart Ehrman sure. and such, tells you something's going on. Even if you don't know what the going on is, huh. something's convinced them. Okay, now what is it? <clears throat> well, it started when scholars realized that up to uh, 70 to 90 percent of Jesus' listeners were illiterate. And if you're going to teach anything as serious as the gospel, if you're going to teach anything as serious as the gospel, um, how are you going to teach 70 to 90 percent of the people who can't sign their name? Hmm. Well, today I could ask the question, how can you teach preschoolers things like this, which in case, which in fact we do teach them. How do they know, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, or Jack and Joe went up the hill? Now those would be secular examples. Sure. Christian examples would be uh, young people who can't sign their name, can still sing, just as I am without one plea, uh, or uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, because we can teach people to memorize and quote and they can't even sign their name. So in the New Testament, these are oral statements written down for the first time. Well, how do you know? Because of the cadence, because of the way they're written, they're short, pithy, you gotta be really good in Greek because they often break the syntax of the statement. Um, and so they're there. So the latest translations, this has been going on for a long time, but the latest translations, uh, if you look in your New Testament, Two kinds of statements now are put in little block quotes. One is an Old Testament quote, like a quote from Isaiah, mm-hmm. might be put in block quote. But the other one are these early creeds, Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, real well-known ones are written in those little tiny blocks. Okay. And uh, many times the author tells us, uh, here's a trustworthy saying, or Paul says twice, I gave you what I was given. Um, so it's those creeds that are there that really close that gap and get us right back to the cross. So where, where can we make, like what you just talked about, where can we now make that jump into evidence that Jesus resurrected? Uh, just for just to be clear for our audience and just for the sake of time, um, this is a big topic, so I just highly recommend for everyone to go check out um, um, Gary Habermas's stuff. Um, but going back to that question again, especially with the minimal facts argument, where can we right. make that jump now to kind of what we've been talking about to, look, this points to evidence that Jesus Christ did raise from the dead? Uh, I, I would say probably for lay people, who haven't studied this firsthand, they're not Greek scholars, they're not historians, um, you know, they've not done professional theology mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Uh, I would say get yourself 
trustworthy sources of people who have done this, and they're trustworthy, and they have the knowledge. So they can set the arguments up for you. And I would say the the best books on the subject right now, if we're talking resurrection, mm-hmm. I would say the best historical argument for the resurrection is Mike Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, an historical, a New Historical Perspective in a Varsity. Uh, that's probably the 750 pages, and it was his doctoral dissertation, uh, revised just a little bit. Um, that's probably the best historical argument. Uh, uh, for the bodily nature of the resurrection appearances, plus a lot of this other stuff, Tom Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Then uh, Bill Craig has some uh, books on the resurrection, but his his one for lay people, which is an excellent little book, is called uh, The Sun Rises, the S-O-N, of course, Rises. And Moody published that, if you get an old, uh, you know, like a used copy. Mm. But uh, I think it's come back out again with Wiffenstock or something. And uh, that's good. And then Mike and I, Mike Lacone and I, wrote a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, which um, is written by Kriegel, uh, published by Kriegel. And that has a case for the resurrection. So I'd say those books, the the one with Mike and me, the one with Mike by himself, the one with uh, Tom Wright, and the one with Bill Craig, I'd say they're the best ones. I'd say get those four, get them in your library, and um, hopefully when my, uh, if the Lord is willing, and my, by that time, 5,000-page manuscript <laughs> is published on the resurrection, you'll have a new source to go to. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to be looking and, forward to that. And I'd also like well, to recommend... I, I had a guy write to me. I don't even have any idea who he is. He just wrote to... I'm going to meet his... I didn't recognize his name. But he wrote me a, an email, and he said, Hey, when your magnum opus starts coming out a volume at a time, he said, Give me a little bit of warning so I can take out a second mortgage on my house. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I'd also like to recommend to the listeners. Um, Dr. Habermas also has a audio and video teaching that can be found at Credo Courses. Yeah, it's, I have uh, that one. It's, it's uh, great. 24 yeah, lectures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah it's They've roughly, done a really good job there. And I, I did this all in lecture, but they also do a little book that comes with it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. A little book it's on the resurrection. And it's nothing like it doesn't repeat the things in the other books that I already mentioned. And then okay. let me add one more. If you want a book, my my book, uh, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, I've got 22 books on the resurrection, so I mean there's a lot of mixing and matching mm-hmm. I can do here. Amen. But uh, the, when my, teach my Ph.D. students, I just call it the orange book. We go by colors because we're Ph.D. students, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the it's an orange book, and it's called The Risen Jesus and Future Hope. And that book, only the first chapter is an argument for the resurrection. The rest of the book is sort of like, who cares? So what? Uh, what would be true if the resurrection happened? Mm-hmm. And we talk about God. We talk about Jesus being a trustworthy teacher, the deity of Christ, uh, the kingdom, salvation. What's salvation about? Um how do we apply this? How does this work with people who have lost loved ones? How does this work with people who are suffering? Uh, and then at the very last, I asked I ask that question about inspiration that we said earlier, don't mm-hmm. lead with it. But once you get it all on the table, sure, go back and talk about inspiration. So sure. Risen Jesus and Future Hope says 
after you get past the resurrection, here's what follows from it. Well, Dr. Habermas, it was uh, it was great to have you on the program. It's such a big topic. I think we need to have him. We need to have you back on for a second time just to maybe get in more depth because we've already done the whole entire forty five minutes. This episode went quick. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I looked down at my watch and I didn't think we we're anywhere close to it. And I thought, oh my, we're about done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we could do it again. That would be fine. But but if if people presuppose this first one to get to the second one because if we have to lay the foundation to get for the second one we'll never get to another one so right yeah yeah that's why i'm kind of looking i'm looking at this episode more as a foundational for the second one so it's it's a must which is which is perfectly fine but um that's uh, good but dr habermas uh god's word says faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of god uh with the remaining time we have can you please share the gospel with our listeners absolutely i started early in the broadcast and i said that whenever the gospel, many times the gospel's taught or it's preached and people come to the Lord, but fewer times the gospel is defined. And there's two sides to the gospel, um, God's side and our side. Um, and on God's side, it's, you know, who's God, who's Jesus, uh, what did Jesus do? And whenever the gospel data, God's side, are defined, they virtually always, I used to say always, but so it's pretty close there, but they virtually always include three things that I mentioned earlier, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the person who we're talking about, the Jesus who was raised, starting at the end, is the Jesus who died is the Jesus who claimed to be deity, that would be going backwards. Mm-hmm. And that's that's who he is, and the resurrection, if it occurred, would back up who he is. Now, that's God's side. Our side is, do you, do you want to say I do to Jesus? And I say I do for a lot of reasons. Um, the word believe in the New Testament is, we, we think, sometimes we think it, it's like the word in English. And we say, I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. Well, and the, the Greek is a lot stronger word. It means to commit. And um, I think an apt illustration of that, in fact, the Bible uses the illustration of, mar- of marriage. You know, Israel's the bride, and mm-hmm. God is the groom. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, the church is the bride, and so on. So we're asked, do we want to say, I do, to Jesus? And the reason I use that is it's stronger than, I believe, you know, George Washington. Uh, it's stronger, but just like you say the word, I do, the words, I do, and that involves a life of walking a certain way and talking a certain way and living yeah. for other people. Amen. That's how Christianity is, too. Mm-hmm. The, the act is faith, but the faith act, the I do is to act, it's to believe. But that immediately gets you into a following. And John and sure. Peter both say, for example, walk in his steps. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do my commandments. So yeah. the minute you say, uh, I do, you're going to be doing something. And to me, that's the gospel. God did it. And if it's true, or whether, you know, it's up to us to say whether or not we want to get married whether or not we want to say I do to God. And to me, that's the response we make. I just got an email from the other, the other day. We say these things a lot, but I just, 
that, that there are people like this. Mm-hmm. But I just got an email the other day where a guy said, I think the message is true. I think Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead. And he literally said in the email, he said, but because of my chosen lifestyle, I don't want to believe. Mm. Wow. So there's that, there's that bifurcation, the splitting sure. mm-hmm. between what's true and what I'm going to do about it. It's sort of like saying I dated somebody, and they would be the perfect person I would want to get married to. But here's mm-hmm. the problem. I don't want to get married. Mm. Amen. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, for coming on. Uh, you've been someone who's, who's been an influence to me in apologetics, and I always enjoy listening to your lectures and, and reading your material. Where can our listeners find, uh, uh, find your stuff at? Well, uh, there's a lot of places because a lot of there's a lot of groups right. out there now that that put all these things on the line. But one place is my website, uh, GaryHabermas.com. That easily H A B E R M A S, GaryHabermas.com. A lot of this material, mm-hmm. and I guess the other place to go, I never put anything there, but there are hundreds. I understand of my things on YouTube. Yes. So there's, <laughs> there's, many, there's many other places too, but there's two you can go to. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are wrapped up with this episode of Bridge Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. We're definitely going to have to do a part two, Raw, right? Yes, absolutely. If you would like to support Bridge Ministries, please visit www.bridgebookstexas.org. Please hit our about slash give uh, tab, and you can find more information about us through our website and also help support the ministry. We're a Christian uh, coffee shop and and bookstore, and we're just uh, absolutely committed to equipping Christians and discipling them. And so, anyway, guys, as always, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.